session is about um, this very curious character called uh, John Lang, who was an um, Australian lawyer, writer, journalist who lived in India between 1846 and 1864, um, when he died here. 1842 to 1864, so 22 years of his adult life he spent mostly in India, a few years um, in England. And, um, he was also the lawyer for Rani of Jhansi, amongst other things. Uh, now that's one of the uh, least important things that he did, but that is sort of the key word for the book to sell in India, the lawyer of Rani of Jhansi. Um, and uh, I also think that as a lawyer his uh, contribution is not so much as a journalist um, and as a writer. But um, uh, what is interesting about this book is, apart from John Lang, it's about um, uh, the writing itself. It's, it was part of my uh, PhD from um, JNU and I also spent a year in Australia researching about him. And a year in Australia I did not intend to, uh, but it was highly frustrating to find that we recycled all our paper. So there was nothing to be found, not much to be found here. I roamed around. Calcutta, Bombay, Pune, Meerat, Agra, um, and found this much, but I found that much. So, also tells about how, uh, how much importance we attach to history. But, um, and also I want to comment upon the processes of writing, the processes of um, um, history writing, which often uh, was ignored, unacknowledged um, uh, when it's written, because then it's written in a certain format, and all the journey that is involved uh, is never detailed in it. Um, the interesting thing about this book is that it details the entire journey of how I went where and what happened and uh, how I lost certain things, how I found certain things, all of that. Apart from that, um, I also wanted to write it um, very differently uh, because the subject matter is um, so rich that if it is confined to the discipline of um, history or even literary analysis, it would seem dry. So I had come back from Australia and um, um, I had a very pretty backpack which I went to to watch a play. It was stolen. I found the thief also a few months later, but pen drive, and it had uh, all the newspapers of John Lang scanned on it. Um, so I lost a lot of material and I was in shock, it was time for me to write um, and a couple of months I just kept investigating how I could find the bag back. Um, and then there were only four months left to write. And so with my supervisor I sat down one night over something from Malibu um, and we tried to talk all night, but talked about other things, everything apart from John Lang. And at 4 a.m. I said, okay, now let's talk about John Lang. And now that it has to be written, what do you think? And he told me that, look, and all night, like John Lang, we had been drinking certain things. So finally he said that, look, um, um, Pablo Picasso knew how to draw portraits very well. Also, if you don't know about that, he's a very good realist um, artist. And he gave that up to uh, do what he did, uh, cubism. And um, uh, so uh, my supervisor said that Pablo Picasso knew how to draw portraits very well, but uh, he did what he did. And so uh, you should do what you should do. 
and in the state that I was, I said, all right, then let's do something else. Instead of five chapters of a PhD, let's do 50 chapters, 10 pages each. And um, um, he is a professor of theory, and I also used to teach theory. I, was, I just started teaching then. <coughs> and I said, and zero theory. Um, we'll strip it off completely. Let, let the narrative itself be theory. Um, and so that's how it began. Next day, of course, he said, no, 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 no this is not happening. This will be too much. Um, we have to reduce it to 17, 18 something. This is what I did, reduced it to 18 chapters, but hid three inside each of them. So 18 into three became 54. That's how it's, it's, it stands right now. And there's my publisher, Trisha, um, who gave me a very hard time because in those four months, I went crazy and wrote... Um, 1,70,000 words, 15 hours a day, or um, mostly thumbs up, it's not an advertisement. <laughs> but when it came to Trisha, she said, yes, absolutely, let's do this. And after a couple of months after I was drawn in, she said, this is too, too fat, we had to reduce it by half. So, <clears throat> so 2 lakh had to become 1 lakh, and um, the rewriting, the editing took much more time because the style had to be kept consistent with um, the original. And of course, um, one changes as a writer over a period of time, the way you write, the way you think. And also, at that point of time, I used to think like a 19th century man. I was so deeply into it that my language was 19th century, the way I spoke. So a few years down the line, it was difficult to retain that uh, flavor. So the editing was uh, more difficult than writing. But I'm glad. Probably um, she was right. Probably people wouldn't read... Um, um, a uh, thousand page book, 500 uh, as it stands now itself is a little um, daunting but I'm told that people have read it cover to cover and I'm, I'm glad it's turned out that way. But <clears throat> I also want to talk about how these things happen, how it is in life um, that lead you to these things rather than as, as a decided subject or something. So I was looking uh, for something else entirely. Um, I was in Pune University at one point of time, hanging out with a friend and um, um, I was shown Alice Richmond's grave. There's Alice Pune University and Alice Richmond's um, grave is over there. So it's another grave in some university but uh, it caught my eye because there were urban legends around it. Of course it's inside a university so there'll be stories and a white girl's grave from 1882. So that her ghost haunts the campus. She roams around in white robes at night with a candle and all of that. That she was in love with an Indian boy and um, committed suicide over unrequited love. These kind of things. Which was cool but still uh, hadn't caught my eye. Until I saw the grave and what was written on it, it was died at this spot and is buried at this spot. That is what caught my eye. Um, too romantic a line to be ignored. And so then I set, um, <coughs> sort of got determined to find out more about her. And there was nothing about her. Because she was not a military general, she was not a civil servant. She was none of those things. So um, it was very difficult to find any archival material about her. Um, but one day, looking up an encyclopedia, actually a cyclopedia, earlier encyclopedias were called cyclopedias, Cyclopedia of Australian Poetry, 1788 to 1888, I found a poem called uh, On the Death of Alice Richmond, Died 14 January 1882, very specific. So there's no ambiguity about that 
this is the very Alice Richmond whose upon whose death the poem is written. And it was by Margaret Thomas, an Australian-born sculptor, arguably the first Australian-born sculptor. And that piqued my interest that something can be really found out about her. And then I did. So that's another story. I did find out lots of stuff about her. She was the niece of Sir James Ferguson, um, who was married into um, a South Australian, um, let's say, uh, wealthy family. Um, and um, Walter Watson Hughes was associated with that family. He had fought a duel over in India, ran away from India, made money of opium, established the Adelaide University, all kinds of um, crazy stories. <coughs> um, so um, um, I'll tell you one in couple of more interesting Alice stories and how John Lang um, happened with all that. So when I was in Australia researching about John Lang, which is later, um, there was a professor who was from South Australia and very interested in this Alice story. And he said, let's go. Let's go to her village. And even he didn't know where the village was, having lived all his life over there. Um, so we looked up the map. Um, it's not yet the Google Maps era. So we were carrying maps and went to this place called Melrose. And indeed, it was Alice's village because her name was all over her surname, Richmond Valley, Richmond Park, this and that. Uh, we went to the library um, um, of Adelaide University, couldn't find anything. And the professor said she must, this family must have gone back to England. That is why there are no records, otherwise they are arguably the wealthiest family of that um, time, which was conflicting. She came from Australia, they went back to England, what is happening, couldn't figure out. So we roamed around all day, did all kinds of things, could find nothing. In the end, at the, in the evening, I said, let us, um, um, let us go to the local historical society. So in Australia, every small um, community has the historical society because the white history is only 200 years old. And the Aboriginal history is the longest in the world. It's unbroken for 50,000 words, so uh, 50,000 years. So one can imagine the amount of decimation that um, happened there. But anyway, so the white people keep their records very assiduously because it's only 200 years old to, to have a sense of history. So I said, let's go check out this local history society. We went there, there was an old lady knitting sweater. The sky was overcast, it was about to rain. And she said, oh. Um, I have a visitor after months, um, I would love to entertain you, um, serve you tea, but the sky is overcast and I have to get home, it will rain very heavily in, in a minute, um, can you come back tomorrow? I said, um, no, we are just on a day trip, we have come from 100 kilometers away um, and we know we are not going to find much but we were giving it a shot. Uh, she said, what is it? I said, there is this family called Richmond family who used to live here in the 1880s and um, in, in particular, this girl called Alice of that family. And suddenly she froze and she said, wait. Went, opened her cupboard, brought out a file, opened it, um, looked through it and said, is your name Amit? And my hair stood at its ends. I was like, what? Um, so, um, this person called um, Dr. John McCarthy had been researching on Margaret Thomas, the uh, lady who wrote that poem about Alice. So, he also read that poem and said, like me, very much like me, he also wondered who the F is Alice, wrote a letter to them. So, he could have, um, and so he read my blog on which I had written some things about very preliminary stuff, one, three lines that I had written and said that, 
if this gentleman ever comes by, please give him this file. So he could have written, um, emailed me, um, commented on my blog, he didn't do any of that, he just printed it out and left that message for me. So I went on a hunt for him in Melbourne, but um, couldn't find him, probably he was dead. Um, and other things happened. So these kind of things um, um, happened. Um, and also what I read on the grave, died at this spot and is buried at this spot, was not on the grave. I found a year later that I had completely imagined it, but not imagined it, it was a premonition. Three years later, I was in Meerut in um, this very beautiful um, church built by Begum Samrud, which is the first Catholic church in North India, in the Italian style, not in the Georgian style that we find all over India. And there, there's a grave of Father Adiotus Nastagi, which says, died at this spot and is buried at this spot. So I had a premonition of what is coming in a couple of years, but that egged me on to um, find out. So initially when I was uh, trying to find out about Alice, um, I didn't know what to do, so I um, <clears throat> used the Hanuman methodology, which is to pick up the entire mountain if you don't know where the, uh, where the Sanjeevni Bhutte is. And whatever Australians were doing in India, I started reading about it, and it's, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a gold mine. Um, Still, for example, um, um, South Australian girls, um, <coughs> they were very wild, they were girls, like cowboys. And um, the standard of um, um, womanhood <coughs> uh, in England was of course sociosomatic snobbery where girls had to faint on listening to bad news and they were groomed in um, uh, groomed for marriage, and which is why the discipline of home science, etc., etc. And home was England for all Australians, so they were very perturbed by these girls going rogue, and so they were sent to England for finishing school. But unfortunately, there were no flights at that point in time, so you had to go through Colombo or through Bombay, and many of these girls would run away with Indian boys. This is what would happen. And there are many interesting stories of um, let's say gold digging Melbourne girls, the four or five were married princes in the first half of 20th century, I'm not going to that. Um, <clears throat> so what they did was, then they said the best way is to make these girls nuns. So South Australian Baptist mission started sending them out as nuns to India. Um, and mostly in Pune and, and in Bengal, which were the strongholds of this uh, mission. So there's one meeting of this mission where um, in a meeting of, uh, at a conference of 150 people, 145 are women and five are men. But what happened as a result of this was that, of course, these were wild girls. So, and they did not have access to um, the men folk very carefully, so they would be allowed to interact only with women. So the women in the Zananas of um, uh, Bengal suddenly uh, learned English and, and learned all these new feminist ideas and everything. And so um, you see Muslim women of um, around Dhaka learning English, suddenly um, unlettered women starting to speak English and having these ideas. So there's this very interesting um, novel by Rokia Khatun, um, Sultana's Dream, which is now prescribed in, in some universities. Uh, a female utopia, and it's written in English in 1905. She acknowledges the presence of an Australian sister who inspired her to write this, and all this is happening in a dream, where men have um, locked themselves up. 
because they were not able to handle the affairs of the world, fight battles. So they have given up power to women. And women do not fight battles with guns and swords. They merely use concave lenses to deflect sunlight onto the enemy and the enemy runs away. They cook with solar energy, they fly with solar energy, there are no, uh, there's no road traffic, it's all garden. And women work only two hours in a day as opposed to eight hours for men because men used to gossip and smoke for the rest of the six. So it's two is good enough to, and the rest of the day is to, to dream and to, um, um, to do creative um, things. So it's very, um, so all these things I kept discovering and then in between came John Lang somewhere. Um, a, a drunk lawyer who fights cases only of Indians against the British um, and who writes against the British every single day in his newspaper. I said, wow, this is something in the middle of all this that can be looked at. And um, then there was um, no looking back once I started, um, and I'm still at it, that lost pen drive, um, I'm still, um, my subsequently my three... Um, <coughs> Um, trips to America, um, so I went on Fulbright thrice to America. Um, I, there also I've been scanning John Lang newspapers for something else um, in the future. Um, the next book probably will be about his newspaper itself, which, uh, which does not go missing in the book, but um, in the current book, but which needs a special attention because of the kind of contents it has. The newspapers then were very different from today's newspaper. The first page would be literature, would be um, a serialized novel or a poem by a leading author or by John Lang himself if he felt the poem was good enough on the first page. There would be discussions about various um, pseudoscience matters like spiritualism, what is called Planchet now, um, or um, discussion over cholera, um, mesmerism, <coughs> all kinds of things. Very. Um, the, all the 19th century stuff, but literature is a huge part of it, which also tells you how important writers still were in um, um, 19th century. So there's definitely a book um, over just the newspaper. Anyway, coming to um, John Lang himself now, there's no real connection between John Lang and Alice Richman except that um, he was part of the legal fraternity, so were some people in her family part of the legal fraternity roughly at the same time. But he had left um, Australia, even though he was very well known in Australia, uh, he had left Australia, so there's unlike, it's unlikely that <coughs> there was much um, between them. So, um, John Lang was born in um, 1816 and died in 1864 in Masuri, like I said. Um, he's buried in Camel's Back Cemetery over here, over there. Um, I've never been able to find his grave and I hope not to find his grave. And he came to India in, um, um, at the age of 26 after, so his schooling was in Sydney and <coughs> in a grammar school where he learned Latin very well so he could, he also wrote poems in Latin which is very curious that they were still doing that in 19th century. <coughs> While here we were also trying to there was a Sanskrit revivalist movement also going on, so uh, the global trends are always um, no, similar. So um, then he went to study law at Middle Temple in England, came back, and in Australia at that point of time, there was a huge caste gap, and I'm using the word caste, between <coughs> the free people and those of the convict origin. So between free people and convict would be a clear gap of legality, but the descendants have a gap, is a caste gap. 
that your grandfather was a thief, therefore you are a second grade citizen. And there were no thieves. Basically, if you stole a spoon, you were sentenced to death and then it was commuted to uh, uh, labor for life in Australia. Uh, that is how they built the colony because they had run out of labor um, in India and, and other colonies in, in Fiji, in the Caribbean and so nothing was left and so the so-called dregs of the society of England was used to build uh, Australia and which is why Australia today is a very fascinating society, is um, much um, very classless, much more class-free than England or America, um, largely because everybody's father is a thief. <coughs> it's called the Commonwealth Wealth of Thieves also. Um, but at that point in time, there was a clear caste distinction between free people and convict people, and John Lang was of the convict origin. Um, and so he had a difficult time as a young lawyer, and he started fighting for it. And um, <clears throat> overshot his brief, he even went on to say that Australia should be an independent country. Um, it became independent, like he um, had said, 40 years later, but then it was too early for all the outrageous things that he was saying for that uh, <clears throat> the emancipists, which is people of the convict origin, should have equal rights and so on and so forth. So, so um, he did not find much success as a lawyer in Australia, in Sydney. His brother-in-law um, was a um, uh, judge in Calcutta High Court, so he suggested, why don't you come to India and try your luck? And the moment he landed in India, he knew this was it, because he was looking, he was looking to fight the establishment, he was looking to fight the British gentry, and this was the perfect ground to, to do it with Indians as allies. And so that is the story of the white man fighting the white man, that he did not spare a single day in his career in India, launching a new invective against the British government in um, India. Um, <coughs> and um, uh, so he started a newspaper in Calcutta called the Mofusilite, and um, then for some reason um, he thought he, he was a small towner, towner and which is what Mofusilite means. And so um, he didn't like Calcutta that much and moved to Meerut from where he operated most of his life and would move to Masuri and Shimla every summer because um, <coughs> all the scandal was in Masuri. And so he would go to Masuri to gather the scandals and also to um, <coughs> enjoy the summer months, um, so to say. So the three parts to John Lang's career as a lawyer, as a journalist and as a writer and all three are equally fascinating. Uh, he did not care about the legal career, he was in it only to make money but he realized that this could also be a very useful weapon to fight the uh, British, so he did. And he won one of the most uh, famous cases of that time against um, in a military court of the of the british military he won the case inside it so which is phenomenal because it was a staged case and he was able to turn it around and win it um, so he became one of the most famous lawyers of, of the time so the case was of one lala jyoti Persaud, who's also a very interesting uh, character and which is another trail i'm still following i got in touch with his descendants so they got in touch with me somehow and um, there's a potential um, something in it also, and my research methodology was wild. At, at one point, I, because the spelling is Persaud, P-E-R-S-A-U-D, which survives in the Caribbean, not here. Here it's reconverted to Prasad. Unlike in Bengal, where um, 
Chattopadhyay became Chatterjee, so it remained like that, or um, Thakur became Tagore, remained like that, but North India converted its um, surnames back. So Persaud is mostly in the Caribbean, so I, uh, I found that there's a professor called Moti Persaud in US. I wrote an email to him, do you know Jyoti Persaud? <clears throat> Are you a descendant, Jyoti and Moti? So the rhyme was my mythology and he, he freaked out a little because um, <clears throat> he was involved at some, in some court case at that point of time and he thought I'm a spy and ferreting information out of him. Um, <clears throat> so he sent me um, a very rude mail saying that these, these methods of spying won't work on me, etc, etc. <laughs> said whatever. <clears throat> anyway. So, <clears throat> Lala Jyoti Prasad was a commissariat contractor giving uh, provisions to the British in Anglo-Sikh wars. Um, and um, uh, he built uh, the British government, um, uh, not the British government, East India Company at that point of time, this is pre-revolution, um, 30 lakh rupees in um, 1850, which is, you can imagine what it is now. Uh, so, instead of paying him that money, they uh, put a case of forgery on him. And John Lang was the guarantor in the case. Uh, why he was is also very interesting. The um, meeting between John Lang and Lala, Lala Jyoti Prasad earlier, in which uh, Lala Jyoti Prasad used to live in a bungalow in, um, uh, in Agra. And um, they were digging inside his bungalow and they found a basement in which there were people uh, walled up with jewels and so probably a, a couple had been punished for um, for love and walled up. And these kind of things. And so Lala Jyoti Prasad suddenly became rich with all the jewels that were on the person of that girl, etc. And that's how John Lang had met him and taken a fancy to Lala Jyoti Prasad. And so he was fighting that case. And he, he was particularly angry because his coat and his um, umbrella had been taken away. Uh, because he was not there in person as a guarantor and he was angry at his umbrella having been stolen by the cops. Um, <clears throat> so there are a couple of versions, whether he was in India or whether he was in England. He himself said he had come from England. My calculations suggest that he never went to England at that point of time. So he was just cooking up a good story in retelling about this case. So anyway, he came to fight the case from England. Let's assume his own version. Um, <clears throat> and. Um, Five days he didn't say anything in the court. He just listened, cooled his heels, smoked his cigars, also drank by the side and Lala Jyoti Prasad was very worried that all his money had gone into waste that on this drunk man and nothing is going to happen. So on the sixth day, John Lang got up and tore the prosecution to shreds. He had been making points of five days and he pointed out each thing meticulously, um, <clears throat> detailed the war and all the bills and everything and within two days they knew that the case had turned around. Um, and so a night before uh, the judgment was to be pronounced, uh, John Lang's friends asked him uh, what he thought of the jury. And he said, they are a bunch of damned sewers. Um, so this was written by William Forbes Mitchell much later and he said that John Exshaw was the leading spirit of the day and John Lang was no teetotaler. So John Lang over John Exshaw was asked this question and he called the jury a bunch of sewers. So his friend said, yes, you can say everything, you can say it in court, you can say it Of course, what are you talking? So a thousand rupee bet was laid um, <clears throat> for him to call them pigs in, on their face on the next day. And in the court he said this part of the case where, that he came aboard 
on the ship called Nile and which is where he had to make up the story of coming from England even though he may have been in India. That he came aboard uh, the ship Nile and they served um, um, rotten pork on the ship and this part of the case where you have accused Lala Jyoti Prasad of, of forgery on such and such date has been accused by that you remember stings like the hind leg of the poke and so on and so forth he named all parts of the anatomy of the poke and called them <clears throat> pigs on their face and the judge advocate general um, in the end um, said that he was ashamed to even have been associated with the case if he had known that this was such a rotten case and open and shut he would not have agreed to be the judge advocate general so he won the case and the bet so that was thousand rupees in addition of um, 10% that he got from Lala Jyoti Prasad, so 3 lakhs out of 30, so um, he's a very rich lawyer for the time, um, just um, uh, courtesy that one case. But the story just begins here, it doesn't end over here. Um, Lala Jyoti Prasad, apart from those 3 lakhs, gave him a gold rocketed portrait of himself. Um, and this became John Lang's lucky charm, he would carry it with him everywhere he went. Um, so he went to England to further his literary career. He was very ambitious as a writer. He wanted to be Charles Dickens. Um, he was a very close friend of Charles Dickens and actually a lot of Charles Dickens is John Lang for literature students. Um, I'll, I'll come back to it um, in a minute. Um, so um, now 1857, Nana Sahib um, killed women and children or his soldiers did. There's always a bone of contention who did that but children and women died, uh, British. And so Nana Sahib became a villain overnight. Um, so as much of a hero as he is in Indian imagination, he is that much of a villain in British imagination. And, and they started um, hunting for him. He was the most wanted man. And there was no picture of Nana Sahib. Even though daguerreotype had come, but there was no picture available to the British. So they thought, uh, the journalists in London thought that this guy John Lang definitely has a picture of Nana Sahib because he has written about Rani of Jhansi, Nana Sahib, everybody. He hangs out with all the nobility of India, he fights the cases. So he had already fought the case of um, Rani of Jhansi by then. Um, <clears throat> so um, this journalist from Illustrated London News went and saw this gold bucketed portrait in, in his house and said, oh that must be Nana Sahib. And John Lang said, well this, as much as you resemble the Queen, this man resembles Nana Sahib only that much. <coughs> but <coughs> the journalist thought, no, he's just trying to protect his friend. And he said, anyway, I, I want the portrait and said, suit yourself. And that portrait um, became Nana Sahib's portrait in Illustrated London News. Um, and that is what has gone down in history books largely as, as Nana Sahib's picture, uh, Lala Jyoti Prasad's. So Lala Jyoti Prasad for a second time, I didn't tell about the first time, became the most wanted man in India. The first time when he had gone missing and um, um, there was um, money on his head, one lakh to be found alive, um, <coughs> two lakh to be f one lakh to be found alive, two lakh to be found dead. Um, because if he was found alive, he'd fund his, his own thing and if he died, whatever. So, and the second time he had become, inadvertently, um, despite having won the case, the most wanted man. So, Jyoti Prasad went into hiding. But his supporters were very distraught and his supporters were very happy um, that he looked like a warrior and looked like Nana Sahib because all the adornments were done to the portrait. And Nana Sahib's 
<coughs> supporters were distraught that he doesn't have a pot belly. What is this? <laughs> what does this mean? Why is he looking like a lala? <coughs> um, <coughs> and so this is uh, very interesting how uh, history plays out in um, in these forms, and what you think of as primary sources may also be erroneous um, down the time. So the Rani of Jhansi was very impressed and um, she invited him to be his lawyer, which is very bad timing because John Lang had already been sent to jail because of the Lala Jyoti Prasad case. He had called Colonel Maktir, one of the jury members, a coward. So he dug up um, a proper researcher. Like uh, We are talking about a case in 1850. He had dug up files of 1824 and found out that one of the jury members had run away from a battle and was declared a coward and was reinstated and bribed his way through, rose up in the ranks and so on and so forth. So he had found all of that and called him a coward and um, was very smart. He had sold his newspaper so nothing is on his name and Ghost wrote in his own newspaper and despite that um, he was jailed in Calcutta for um, two months. So he told the Rani that, um, that there's not much point because um, you lose the case if I'm the lawyer. But she anyway wanted to go ahead with it. And she indeed did lose the case within a week because um, it was the doctrine of lapse case. So if the rule itself says that if you don't have a biological child, you'll forfeit your kingdom. There was not much to be done if John Lang was the lawyer who the British government wanted to settle scores with. Also wasn't um, going to help the case. So she lost the case within a week. but. Um, this is one of the most fascinating documents about the Rani of Jhansi because nobody, no other um, uh, white writer has written about her or had met her. So there's a whole page of um, description and Lang's description are like novels because he was a writer. So um, <coughs> about her beauty um, and he says that uh, she's buxom and must have been a real beauty in her youth. She was only 26, so this also tells about what youth was at that point of um, time. <clears throat> and that she lifted the veil to show her face, which she never lifted for anyone, which may be an exaggeration or whatever. And then, it, as it gets exaggerated in popular media, and um, on ZTV when they made a serial on Rani of Jhansi, there's an episode about John Lang in which they're playing cricket <clears throat> and flirting with each other and all kinds of things are um, <clears throat> happening. Um, so happened except that she lifted the veil for him probably if he's right which I don't think he's just bragging um, but she did give him lots of gifts an elephant jewels her own portrait all of that is lost because um, John Lang's family um, shifted to Burma and then there's the second world war so where the prop property went there's no personal property of John Lang there are no diaries nothing so it's all of the thing I've done is by uh, his own accounts and by what other people have said about him and and his newspaper etc. So it's been gleaned from uh, what I'm telling you very simply is, is uh, a lot of hard work to get each part of the episode um, in, in order. So that was um, um, his role as um, lawyer largely and on one occasion um, uh, which um, <coughs> thankfully this is the only good part of the when I was editing the book, that in the while writing it, I did not know this incident, which I'm going to narrate very well. While editing it, I re-researched it and found out what it was. So there was a man supplicating to a king, and he was not able to do it properly. So John Lang intervened. He was in the court at that point of time, in Darbanga Maharaja's um, court. And he said, I'll 
argue on your behalf and that man was a big man he picked up john lang and threw him into the crowd so and the newspaper says that um, <coughs> lang <coughs> wasn't hurt but his ego definitely was um <coughs> so uh, i initially thought this was an indian man and he was arguing the case trying to argue the case in urdu he learned urdu and farsi very fast it turns out it was a french circus man who had been um, traveling across the world taking his circus and he'd been swindled of some money and being a french man he did not know english so he was <coughs> um, he also knew french so he was trying to interpret from french to english to urdu to the king and um, <coughs> and he got angry because uh, he didn't because he thought that his english was good enough or <laughs> whatever something of that sort <coughs> he did throw lang into the crowd um it's a big man um so there there are many kinds of these these kind of anecdotes and also that uh, history writing um no buries these kind of anecdotes because they are anecdotes and uh, they do not have the authority of a historian writing about it or a particular kind of archive that you uh, want um and so these are buried and a lot of flavor of of, of a person's life is also lost like that um so anyway coming to his uh, newspaper newspaper is very interesting like i said it's very literary and he had also learned urdu and farsi very fast so he was also translating gulistan of um, uh, sadi of shiraz um <coughs> which which is um, still a very celebrated um text um so like i said his two main agendas uh, in his newspaper were to lampoon the judiciary of which he was a part he was part of the legal fraternity so he endlessly tells how boring these court cases are how there's nothing in them how the farce is played out in these court marshals um <clears throat> in the military courts also and how um, all this paperwork which which um, <clears throat> remains as a legacy and in our language likh ke de denge i'll give it to you in writing as if give it in giving it in writing makes any difference if it's given in writing it's even more tedious you have to go to a court file an affidavit fight for 30 years to prove what was written and what is it about why is the spoken word not as important as the written word and so we still say i'll give it to you in writing um so he says that um, the british considered um the indians hostile that these poor witnesses uh, would come and be bribed with a bottle of liquor and they would change their statement and so they started writing everything and the writing was pointless because these people were illiterate and so their thumb impression would take and so it became even more draconian than the spoken word at least spoken word there's a bunch of witnesses to corroborate that he's changed his statement in the written word it's just the thumb impression and you can completely transfer the property change a family's fortune anything would happen so he lampoons the judiciary uh, judiciary and the legal system on a daily basis uh, in his newspaper and point by point it's very sharp very precise and and then the indian uh, military um and he also has written very interesting novels about the indian military at that point of time and says things like you know no do not care much about the major general he's a drunk he's a major general because four people he was yesterday a captain four people uh, above him died of cholera which is why is the major general today because everybody dies of cholera and plague in india so no nobody's rank tells you anything except that his seniors have died <coughs> 
um, and um, uh, very interesting things like um, the women, the wives were not allowed to stay in the barracks if their husbands died. And so they were always on the lookout. Always a backup husband was ready in case the husband died. And so the husbands would die and they would immediately remarry to stay in the barracks. And in some funny incidents, the dead husband would come back. Um, so in one of the novels, uh, this happens. <clears throat> There's a whole bunch of people who have died in battle and 10 women get married and all the 10 husbands come back and then there's a duel between the new husbands and the old husbands and things of that order. So there's um, routine fun making of, of the military and um, uh, judiciary and which is food for thought. Actually you could transfer all those documents and print them for today they could well seem like it's, it's today's world. Uh, so what is interesting is that this was this was allowed in um, the 1850s, this was a done thing. Um, he did go to prison, but um, they had to put a lot of effort um, and the entire might of the military establishment. And he was out in two months also as a much bigger hero and he was smoking cigars inside jail also and so on. But um, the power that writers and journalists wielded at that point um, is, uh, which is not a democracy, which is an empire where um, it's a dictatorship and still the journalist has that kind of free will, that kind of leeway to say whatever he wants to say about the establishment and also get rich along with it. Um, and so his informers were um, the military wives. All his friends were women and which is why his novels are feminist because uh, which is very odd in Victorian age when um, all the novels are about um, the shyness of women and them seeking out husbands. His novels are quite the opposite. The women are the heroes of, of, um, of his novels because they were his audience. That's how his newspaper sold. So he's very smart. He knows his audience and what to write for them. Um, and he gleans information about the military from the wives and it's all authentic information. So his information is also much better than other newspapers which would come from official sources, which would be much toned down, there would be no scandal in them. Um, he would have the real scandals from the horse's um, mouth. So at one point of time, Lord Harding summoned him and um, he was so disturbed by John Lang's daily invective um, that he summoned him and said, what is happening? Why do you write so much against me? And he said, my lord, why did you come to India? Did you come to make money? And Harding said, well, I'm a poor man. Harding is one of the richest people of England. He said, well, I'm a poor man. So, of course, I've come to make money. So, he said, if you are a poor man, uh, what am I? Um, so, I also have a right to make money. And I make much more money writing against you um, than I can ever by praising you. And Lord Harding was so pleased with his bid that he made him his um, state guest in Shimla. <clears throat> and after that did not complain about um, um, whatever he wrote. He let him write whatever he wrote. And in fact, in 1857, while he was writing against the British, um, <clears throat> with the battle raging, his newspaper was being printed from inside the Agra fort under the protection of the British military. So uh, these are the kind of things that did exist at that point of time which one cannot think um, that an officially protected press can write against that very office <clears throat> uh, to bring it down. Um, there's one other very interesting incident in which um, um, the cops had burnt down a village in pursuit of a um, thief. 
the village would not give him up and they got frustrated, burned down the village. And Lang knew Urdu very well, so newspapers were printed at the same place, his English newspaper and Jami Jamshid, the Urdu newspaper. Um, so he wrote the piece in Urdu and left it over there for the Urdu newspaper to pick it up because he could not print it in his own. And um, then how do we know about it? Because he himself brags about it in a short story. That there was a rogue British journalist um, who did these kind of things. He learned Urdu and he could not print this in his own newspaper. <clears throat> so he wrote this entire story and left it at the Urdu press. That is how this... Um, and <clears throat> I wish I never knew such a rogue man or if I knew him, I would have him punished or something like that. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so he makes sure that um, also that this is known. You know, the process of writing a book, but uh, you can all imagine the hard work that's gone into it. Uh, any questions from anybody? Any, any comments or clarifications? No, it's just a comment. It's, it's, it's just one of the best written books I've read in the recent times. I honestly think whether you're in law or journalism or any other field of your life, this book must be read. Absolutely. Just read it for the sense of research that you'll get there. I think so that's what Thank I enjoy you. about historical novels. The amount of work that goes in and then is shown by the author. Uh, the humor, the, the life which our history books don't really capture. That's a very interesting statement you've made. And also Mridula Garg in her review has written this is a novel and she's used uh, devices of Natya Shastra criticism to say that, but this is not a novel. This is um, purely history book in which um, I have written it like a novel. So it's rigorous. There's 60 pages of notes to back up every sentence um, that is said. But the point is that history can also be written like a novel. Well, uh, I was actually interested in Alice Richmond and I would like to know if you would be writing anything on her because I would read it. Yeah, that's the next novel. So that'll be... Um, it's in more experiment form, John Lang I experimented with form. Um, Alice would be a footnoted novel in which, uh, let's say one chapter would be purely historical, one chapter would be purely fantasy and it'll run like that and try to <coughs> weave it together uh, in a seamless narrative. That's the next. There's Dara Shiko coming up next and after that is Alice Tichman. Looking forward to it. Thank you. As I reached um, Lang as a novelist, Lang as a novelist is also uh, very important um, and very funky, I would say, for the Victorian age. Um, and um, this example I was giving of his description about Rani, he uses the same paragraph to describe one of his characters. Now, again, with the timeline, I always get um, confused. The novel is actually from before he met the Rani of Jhansi. So he's probably used the stock description of his female character for the Rani. So we don't know if it's, it's a coincidence or <coughs> that, that he found the Rani like that character or he just used it out of sheer laziness, we do not really know. But um, uh, the novel is Jenny Dale or Three Calendars. And calendar um, is very interesting. I could not understand what this calendar is. So, um, so he spoofs basically uh, pride and prejudice in this novel. Jade Austin's Pride and Prejudice, there are three girls, the three guys, they're ball dancers and 
like in Jane Austen, one would fall in love with the other, the youngest one is a rogue, there'd be a mild twist and everybody would get married. Here something else happens. She falls in love with all the three men because um, when they dress in the calendar dress, they look alike. So calendar is Kalandar. And Kalandar is a fakir roaming around in the street who has no affiliation, who is basically in patched up clothes. So, so for some reason, these people in the British military dress in the calendar dress. And they all look alike um, when they dress in the calendar dress and she's fascinated, so she falls in love with all the three. And um, the other two sisters then, have, something has to be done about it. And one of the standard parts of John Lang's novel is to send the guy to India. One guy to India because the plot plot must run in India. Most of the plot must run in India, um, which is um, for his propaganda, in which he'd make the character eventually say, "England he despised, India he loved." The same character would say, and he says the same. Different characters say the same thing in five different novels. That's that line doesn't change. England he despised, India he loved. And so this character is sent to India, so then she settles for the second one, the third one dies, the first one comes back, so he's made to fall in love with another, the other sister, and so on and so forth. So eventually he um, solves it like that. And he also s solves it in a mocking manner, that look, I'm solving it for you, I don't really intend to solve it. So he'd also kill a couple of characters, just like that, probably a board. But it's a very feminist novel in an age when feminism was not a term. So there's another novel um, where um, divorced lady is uh, living with a bachelor um, and um, uh, things like that. Um, so very progressive uh, for that time. You know, he generally collapses the novel to a standard um, uh, Victorian uh, conclusion, but after having sufficiently mocked at the reader that this is your sensibility, this is the end you want, uh, so either I'll kill these characters or, or, what, or what you want. So in one, um, there are two sisters, one is white, one is black, and both are products of interracial marriage. And because um, mm, uh, <coughs> this half-caste um, woman marries a purebred British man, um, she dies and she turns black in her death, much like her sister, things like this. <coughs> so very surreal, very, it would seem like these are Latin American novels. If the language were changed from Victorian to modern, it almost sound like that. Another novel where he builds it up to this uh, um, <coughs> very rich, wealthy white guy coming into the Indian army and being a debauch and everybody wants him reformed so um, and married. So he falls in love with a Bhishti woman who's a Muslim and who's black in color and he makes all these categories clear and he says that do not think of black and white in, in your British terms. They're all shades of brown and white and everything in India, you would not understand. But I'm taking the lowest common denominator and this guy marries this woman who's also illiterate. And so of course there's outrage all over the army and he gives a long sermon to the priest that is she not a child of God, that you are outraged at this, etc, etc. He <coughs> makes a big fortune because she has a very good sharp uh, um, idea of accounts. He leaves the army and says, get, get sufficiently tanned enough to pass off as an Indian, wears Indian clothes, becomes a wealthy man. Uh, one fine day he's killed by the thugs in the forest. 
and then so it builds it up like that and, and then finishes it um, somewhere like that and then the rest of the story is about his um, son etc uh, just to give you a flavor um, so that's where I'll, I'll stop